Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together today. We pray that you will guide our understanding and help us as we seek to go through this passage and to understand what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church and ultimately what he's saying to us as this would apply to our own lives and situations. We pray that this will help us that we might be the kinds of Christians that would glorify and honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we have our quiz first. This is based on what we went over in chapter 5. Remember the question about incest there with the man in the church. Incest was commonly tolerated among the pagans in Paul's day. False, Paul says. And that's true from what we know. That was generally not tolerated. Church discipline is something to be done exclusively by the pastors or elders of the local church. False. So this is a congregational matter, Paul says, when you're gathered together and so forth. So even though Pastor Ken might want to get rid of me, <laughs> he cannot remove me from this church on his own. Just remember that if he tries. Just remember that. You've got to say so, okay? Just remember that. And uh, three, church discipline is an attempt to maintain the purity of the local church. True, because uh, we know we're not totally pure. We know we were all sinners, but we're not tolerating open sin. We're trying to uh, curb that. For in Paul, the indicative always follows the imperative. Remember that indicative imperative thing? Is that true? That's false. The indicative is what God has done for us. And so Paul always says, here's what God has done. Yes, the indicative, that's the statement. Indicative means the statement. So the indicative is, here's what God has done. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And there, therefore, you know, here's what you should do. Clean out that old leaven, the imperative, the command. Our response follows what Christ has done. So the imperative follows the indicative, the command. No one should have any contact with someone disciplined out of the local church. Okay, false, yeah. So it says no contact. Now there is a limit on contact. We talked about that. In other words, um, we don't want to treat that person as though nothing has changed. Our relationship should be primarily redemptive in that sense. We want to still be friends and all that, but it would be an attempt to try to get them to see the error of their ways, to come back to Christ and so forth. It would be more of a redemptive thing. We wouldn't want to just carry on as though nothing has happened. We accept everything that you're doing in the situation. So we're looking at uh, chapter 6 which is one of the problems communicated by common era. First was immorality in the church. That was uh, the sexual sin of incest. Now we're going to deal with immorality again here in a second. But we've got two other issues. One is lawsuits within the church. And then the problem that we'll see in chapter 12 and following, verse 12 and following, of certain men going to prostitutes in ancient Corinth. So... uh, I say here, beginning under uh, B, um, Paul concluded the previous argument by insisting that the church is not to judge those outside, but must judge those inside. 
That had to do, first of all, with the expulsion of the incestuous man, but it also has to do with another kind of judgment that must take place within the Corinthian church, namely in the matters of everyday life, where one member has a grievance against another. The church ignored the outrageous case of incest, but amazingly had no trouble taking one another to court before pagan magistrates for what were, in Paul's thinking, rather minor matters. If, as Paul says, they will one day be judging angels, then certainly they should be able to settle minor issues that come up within the church. And when you read uh, ancient authorities, they say that the Greeks were very litigious, that they loved going to court. Maybe that's like Americans today. You know, we think Americans are very litigious. They... They like to go to court, but that seems to be a characteristic at least ancient authors talk about. So Paul seems to be talking about various kinds of property or financial disputes in this passage. Note, for example, verse 7, why not rather be cheated? Paul is not dealing with criminal cases which are to be handled by the state. Remember, Paul makes it clear in Romans 13, we're subject to the governing powers. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, where there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, but the one of the authorities is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. That is punishment. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It's necessary to submit to authorities and so forth. So we're not talking about criminal cases here. When someone uh, commits a criminal uh, penalty... We don't try to settle it in the church. Um, if someone shoots somebody at church, we don't say, "Well, let's try, let's, let's try to figure this one out here." You know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And uh, so we we don't we we don't we're talking about what we might call as civil matters. These are minor matters, property disputes. Uh, probably one man in the church had swindled or defrauded another man in the church. Recalls Paul's reference to swindlers, remember, in 5.9. Uh, we, uh, we had that, we had, uh, that reference in 5.9. So the man swindled had taken the other to court in Corinth before the civil magistrates at the judgment seat in the marketplace. Remember, I showed that picture before. That, that's that place called the Bema in Greek. Bema is that's pronounced Bema. But right here was where you would be taken to court in this area right here, right below Acrocorinth there. Um, so um, the whole community would be aware of this. You know, you're, you're taking, you're there in the forum, you're in the public marketplace. Um, so everyone would know that this guy in the church is taking another guy to court for this lawsuit so it would be a public matter um, and since they had material possessions here these men were probably people who were uh, well known in the community, they were probably men of stature if they were suing each other they had they had things to sue each other about and so forth so it's probably they would be well known and that's what Paul is concerned about here Let's look at the, uh, first of all, the seriousness of the problem, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. If anyone has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? 
So Paul is horrified that what he's heard, do you dare, he says. Do you dare do this? The situation involves someone who who is wrong seeking adjudication in the courts. The phrase has a dispute is a technical term for a lawsuit. The problem is the problem in this case is that the case was brought before the ungodly instead of before the Lord's people. Now, though Paul, the NIV translates this word here, ungodly, though they're called ungodly here, Paul is, as I say, not trying to demean the Roman courts if they were corrupt. Certainly some were, but Paul often used the courts himself. He, he, he went to court and used the courts and so forth. The word translated ungodly here is uh, sometimes commonly translated unjust. These are unjust people, ungodly people. It's regularly used for people who break laws and so forth. Um, they're unrighteous, they're unjust. Uh, and according to verse 9, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So, uh, on verse 1, Paul calls them ungodly. Verse 6, he calls them unbelievers. But, but instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. So he calls them ungodly or unbelievers. They're ungodly um, in the sense that they are unbelievers. That is, they don't believe in God. He's not saying they're ungodly because I'm trying to say they're corrupt or something like that. He's not talking about their corruption at this point. They're just ungodly. Here are people who don't believe in God, and you as Christians are taking your disputes, these minor disputes, to these people to settle. Obviously, these call, this, this calls for Christian wisdom and, and so forth, and you're taking to these people who don't even believe in God. That's the point. Verse 2. Or you do not know that the Lord's people will judge the world. Do you not know the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? The absurdity of this for Paul comes out in this verse, where he says that those ungodly who will not inherit the kingdom will be judged in a far more important eschatological future judgment by the Lord's people. Yet they are being asked to judge the Lord's people over what he considers to be trivial matters. Paul explains, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Now Paul does not explain the details of this judgment, nor does anyone in the New Testament. That is, no one really explains to us exactly how are we going to be judging the world. It may, if there's some verses like Revelation 2, 26... To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And Jesus talks about uh, the people, his people ruling in the kingdom and things like that and having power over nations. So it may involve that kind of thing. But the point here is, given the significance of this eschatological judgment, don't you know that we will judge the world that's a, that's a tremendous, important judgment, obviously. The point is that these lawsuits are rather trivial. They're trivial. They're totally insignificant in light of these really important future eschatological matters. Uh, they're out of place in the church. Verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? The question in verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels, intensifies the point of verse 2. So inclusive will be our participation in God's eschatological judgment <clears throat> that not only the world, but even the angels will be judged by the people of God. We're probably talking about fallen angels who will be judged 
in the future, and we'll have some part in that. Though the, the Bible doesn't tell us all the details there. Paul's point is that in the future, the church will set in the ultimate judgment, even the judgment of angels. Therefore, if, it should be obvious that the church should be able to handle trivial matters. The Greek term that's translated, the things of this life, how much more the things of this life, is a commonly used term for matters that could be settled out of court. We have disputes with people. We don't take everybody to court just because we have a dispute. We try to settle it, even with unsaved people. We try to settle it out of court. We don't take everybody to court in that sense. Well, there's the uh, twofold sin involved. First of all, A, going before secular courts. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Paul does not mean so much that the Christians despise pagan judges, but they are the, those people whose values and judgments the church has rejected by its adoption of totally different standards. To go to pagans' courts is to ask those to make a ruling among Christians whose way of life is scorned in the church. We don't hold their values. We have different values, different value systems. So why would we go to them? Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Paul begins with, I say this to shame you. Remember earlier in 4.14, he maintained he was writing not to shame them, but to warn them. But here he's shaming them. In a church full of pride and arrogance for wisdom, <coughs> suggesting superior spirituality, spirituality was a watchword. Paul asked, is it so with you that there is nobody among you who is wise? So he might be able to render a decision between the brothers. So this is, again, biting sarcasm. He's very sarcastic about this situation. Paul's trying to help the Corinthians see the truth, their true condition against their perceived condition. So a trial before uh, brothers in a pagan court is no innocent matter. It reveals their lacking in Christian wisdom. But instead, verse 6, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. As in verse 1, the prepositional phrase in front of unbelievers involves bringing such matters before the civil magistrates in Corinth. Here the emphasis lies with the fact that the church is thereby airing its dirty linen in the public. So that's one problem Paul sees. You've got this dispute in the church. You've got this dirty linen. It's unfortunate. And now you're airing it in the church. You're not... It's a question of testimony, isn't it? And, you know, many verses in the Bible talk about that. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, to the Corinthians later on, don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So he's talking about don't cause others to stumble. Like brother, we're talking about unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Greeks. We should have a good testimony. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your own hand, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so you will not be dependent on anybody. So that's what Paul is upset about here. They're going to court in front of these unbelieving judges. They're airing their dirty laundry here. They should be able to settle these matters among themselves. Another problem, of course, is going to court at all, Paul says, 6, 7, and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. 
Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? These are strong words. In this section, Paul emphasizes the total feat that this action represents already. Whatever the result of the lawsuit, it's altogether a defeat for you, you have, that you have lawsuits with one another. Paul's point is, whether you win or lose, the action itself is already a loss. For even if you win, you lose by not being able to endure injury. And the church loses by your action before the public tribunal. Since this is so, Paul asks a rhetorical question of the person who brought the suit, the plaintiff, why not rather be wrong? You got cheated, but why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Strive to do what is good. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. So these are kind of ideas that are in the background here. The second verb, cheated, has the idea of robbing, cheating, or defrauding someone out of what is rightfully another's. This problem is particularly suggests some kind of property or business dealing in this problem. So we're not talking about a, 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 a criminal matter here. We're talking about some sort of dispute that Paul thinks could be handled in a church, a minor matter between two Christians. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Paul now turns and speaks a word of shame to the one who did the defrauding in the first place. The implication of the warning that follows in verses 9 and 10 is that such behavior is not only shameful but cannot be tolerated by the Christian community. Now, let's give an example here. <clears throat> See if you can solve this one. So here's Paul over here. Paul's a good friend. I know him better than I know a lot of you here in the church. Because Paul loves Greek. Anybody <laughs> loves Greek. <laughs> but let's say I got this car that I want to sell. And Paul wants to buy this car. And it's $1,000, okay? And we agree, you know, it's $1,000. And Paul comes over to my house, and I got the papers there, you know, the, the title. And you're supposed to, I'm supposed to sign it, remember, or sign, you sign the title and so forth. And Paul says, oh, you know, Bill, I forgot my checkbook. You know, Paul's a good friend. I said, oh, well, just give it to me, you know, in church on Sunday. This is like a Thursday or something, you know. So Paul takes the car, takes the title, he goes and gets it registered, gets a license plate. He drives it to church. You are having trouble with your car, aren't you? You told me yesterday he was having trouble with his car. So you might, this might be a good example. You know? <laughs> so uh, so Paul comes to church on Sunday and he says, you know, uh, we agreed on a thousand. I know, I know I said a thousand, but I've driven this car and I just don't think it's really, it's really worth a thousand. I wrote you a check for 900. 900. And I said, Paul... You know, we agreed, you know, this is a thousand dollars, you know. Uh, and uh, Paul says, no, I just don't think it's, it's worth what, what should we do? You're the church, you're CBC. <laughs> what should I do? What do you think? Here. You should get cheated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can only speak for myself. I would one hundred dollars is not worth a friendship. Yeah. Now, not to say that some communication would not be appropriate because it would be. 
I don't think it's wrong to communicate um, perhaps your displeasure over the, the manner in which that was done, but be willing to meet it. Yes. I think Paul owes you a $1,000 because he agreed to it. Yeah. Yeah. He did agree, didn't he? It wasn't yeah. So what if what if I'm not happy? What if I'm not happy about this? Okay, so we're looking at what the woman would do with what a man would do. A man would stop his foot and say, You owe me that ten hundred dollars. A woman would say <laughs> That's a given. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to take that a step further. Yes. Um, going forward, as a woman, yeah. I would just simply make a mental note yeah. <laughs> that this person deals this manner, and yeah. I will not deal with yeah. this person by, with anything financial. Yeah. Don't sign the title until you got the money. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the list of who you're selling. Yeah, yeah but I already done it, so it's too late. I signed the title. Well, he says he says he says on the one hand, why not rather be wrong? Right. Why not rather be cheated? But if you're not willing to do that, let's say I, I just say no, <clears throat> no, I, I want my money. So I'm obstinate here. Then I think I could take it before the church, right? I could. I might contact the leadership of the church. <clears throat> the point would be here is. We shouldn't just leave it this way between me and Paul, really, should we? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I could if I if I said I might say, you know, Paul's probably right; it's not worth a thousand. Well, we settled it, right? But what if I said, you know, I think the car was worth fifteen hundred dollars. I was giving it to Paul for a thousand, and now he's cheating me out of that. This is just wrong on Paul's part. So you know, but. You know, I might be willing to, because of my friendship, I might be willing to, you know, it's, it's, you said make a mental note, but the problem with that is then I got this, I got this barrier between me and Paul, you know. That's not a good thing, is it? <laughs> that goes two ways, though. Yeah. Paul can always fix it. Yeah. Well, Matthew 18, you can go through that. Yeah. Too. That would be, that would be church discipline. So I could, I could, the point is, over that $100, I shouldn't take him to court. I shouldn't take him to court. That's the point, right? According to Paul, that's a minor matter. This day and age, $100 is not life and death, and I shouldn't take him to court over that. If I'm not satisfied, if I'm not willing to just say, oh, that's not nothing, it's just $100, what difference does that make? I'm not willing to say that, then I would take it to the church. I would go to the church leadership and say, listen, we got a problem, Paul promised me this. They should come in and talk to Paul, talk to me and Paul, and see what's going on here and see what went wrong. Well, we'd, we'd like to restore our, our relationship because that's that's a barrier there, isn't it? You know, the point I guess. And so this 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 doesn't solve every Paul's instruction doesn't solve everything here, but it does kind of give us a little hint. We just don't rush out to sue the first thing. And if we have a problem, if we can't solve it among ourselves, then we could go to the church leadership, I think, and say, "Hey, can you help us here? We've got, we've got, uh, we've got a problem between us. He promised this, and you know, this kind of thing." 
and there's agreement. He he agrees. He promised a thousand, but now he says the the the, the, uh, the car's just not worth it, you know, and so forth. So we bring some other people in, brings maybe the leadership or so forth of the church, and have them try to to settle this dispute among us. It could be there's all kinds of ways that could be done, but we wouldn't want to. The point here is we don't want to rush each other to court over this matter. Yes. We have to remember it says we will you be cheated. That's right. That's right. And rather rather than take it to rather than take it to court, I should rather I should be willing to be cheated. And yeah. that might yeah. the manner that we handle it yeah. as the person being cheated yeah. may keep burning coals on them. On it them. might, it might, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. I think it's it's still unwise if uh, it's still unwise to leave it unresolved probably. Yeah. I think it's unwise to leave it unresolved mm-hmm. um, in any case. But the point is, the, at least we can get out. We, I shouldn't be rushing the court over this matter. Yes. But if uh, so, it's a hundred dollars. We say, well, it's not worth the friendship for a hundred dollars. What if I went to Sue and said she, I gave her a deposit on a trip, and trip comes, she says, well, just you know, I know I trust you. You're on staff at CDC. Mm-hmm. Come on the trip, maybe when we get back. Yeah. So now maybe I owe her a thousand dollars. Yeah. But I don't owe her. I actually owe her a business. Yeah. How that you think that would be? Say like I want to sue the pants off. Yeah, I understand Ron to beat me up. Yeah, you always want to bring up. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not always it's not always possible to avoid lawsuits. You know, in the sense we live in a certain age where laws come into play, even among Christians, you know, you may get into a wreck, a car wreck or something. Their insurance company may sue the other insurance. You know, you may get into a situation where that's... But in these kind of situations, we don't want to be... What Paul saw here was the unnecessary kind of things, and we want to try to avoid those. Well, we see the basic misconception behind it, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither is the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The wrongdoers here speaks of people who engage in a lifestyle of sin. So the word wrongdoers, the way it's translated here, it's those who commit acts of sin, not a single act of sin. Paul's talking about Here we're talking about people whose lifestyle. Thus Paul is saying that those who commit unrighteous acts as a pattern of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lives are characterized by the kinds of sin Paul goes on the list have never truly experienced the saving grace of God and thus are still slaves of their sin. So Paul's point here is to warn the Lord's people, as he talked about us earlier, not only the person who has wronged his brother, but the whole church. If you persist in these kinds of evils, these kinds of things as a manner of life, you're in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. So Paul's concern is stop deceiving yourselves. Just because you've made a profession of faith doesn't mean that you're saved. Remember we said that we're all here professors of faith. And so Paul's dealing with a church where there's sin. And so he's treating them as believers, but he's always in the background, you know. He'll say later in 2 Corinthians, 
examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Because it's possible that people can be in the church and yet ultimately living a lifestyle of sin. So we always have to be thinking about ourselves in that sense. Um, Paul says, then, the inconsistency of this. The basic misconception is, Paul wants them to see, is you can engage in these kinds of sins I've been talking about with no consequences. If you engage in these kinds of sins as a matter of life, it, it calls into question your profession of faith. The inconsistency of it, verse 11. And this is what some of you were. <clears throat> this list in verse 9 and 10. This is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul does not want to conclude on the note of warning struck in verses 8 through 10, since it might leave the impression he thinks all the Corinthians were actually still among the wrongdoers. And this epistle, Paul often includes, concludes a warning with a positive note. Thus he brings this whole matter to a conclusion by reaffirming, and this is what some of you were. So the previous list, that sin list in verses 9 and 10, is what the wicked are still. And because of that, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those who persist in those activities are in the same danger. But that is what some of you were, Paul says. Now in Christ Jesus, you're something different. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been given new life, new direction. So live like it, he says. Stop defrauding. Stop living in sexual sin because you're no longer among those who do. I say as part of their depravity, some people experience homosexual desires. Verse 9 talks about sexually immoral, idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. That they may be more inclined toward this kind of behavior. That is, they may be more inclined because we're all depraved. And as depraved creatures, we're twisted and we're declined. We are inclined sometimes towards different kinds of sinful behavior. Some types of sin attracts us, some types of other sin doesn't attract us. Paul says, however, this is what some of you were because he believes in the power of God to transform human lives, desires, and inclination. So God can give Christians enough power to overcome or to resist our sinful desires. Um, a Christian does not have to act on their impulses, on their sinful desires, though we continue to struggle. We may often struggle with sinful desires for a long time, certainly. Uh, struggling doesn't mean uh, that you just go on and join them, but you still are tempted. You still may fall, but you're repentant. You see this is a problem. I say the rest of this verse gives the basis for this premise. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul's point is that their conversion produced by God through the work of Christ and the Spirit is what has removed them from being among the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom. These three verbs, washed, sanctified, justified, speak of the various aspects 
of probably the initial phase of our salvation. We are washed from the filth of the sins listed there in verses 9 and 10. This washing is probably a metaphor for regeneration, the new birth. Remember Titus 3, 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. The rebirth is like a washing because our sins are washed away and renewed, renewed by the Holy Spirit. We've been sanctified, that is, set apart from our sinful past. Remember, sanctification includes those three aspects, past, present, and future. And when the past aspect of sanctification is the power, the dominion of sin has been broken, Romans 6. We're no longer slaves to sin because we have a new nature. Now we have the ability to serve God and please God and to resist sin. Um, So uh, we've been sanctified. We have been justified. That is declared to be righteous through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our account. So there's an there's an there's kind of an implied imperative here to these verses here. You were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified, not justified. Therefore, Paul's imperative that's you know live out this new life and stop being like the wicked. You know, stop doing these kinds of things. All right. Christian liberty. Going to the prostitutes, 6, 12 through 20. Paul talks about Christian liberty here, particularly in the case of, of people in the church, men in the church, going to prostitutes. Christian liberty and its proper boundaries, 6, 12 through 14. In verses 15 through 17, Paul will argue that one may not take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute. Apparently, some men within the church were going to prostitutes and were arguing for the right to do so. It is unknown whether these were temple prostitutes, in which case Paul may have gotten into the subject because of his warnings against sexual immorality and idolatry in 6-9, or ordinary prostitutes whose primary clientele were sailors who docked at Sincrea and Lechium, harbors to the east and west of Corinth, respectively. Remember, we showed this picture of Corinth. Here's Corinth. Remember, it was like a... Uh, it was like a... Some people compare it to some place like Amsterdam or somewhere like that, you know, if you've heard about the brothels there. So Corinth was a port city at Port City, Crea, Lechium. People were coming in there all the time. Sailors were coming in there. Um... There is uh, the temple, uh, there is Acre Corinth, and on top of that uh, mountain was the temple of Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite. Here's what uh, the Greek geographer Strabo said. The temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it had acquired more than a thousand prostitutes donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. These would be slaves. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. The ship captains would spend fortunes there. And so the proverb says the voyage to Corinth isn't just for any man. So um, I said here, it's hard to know exactly what kind of prostitution this was because there was a lot of it in the ancient world. There were... Three, three types of it. 
there was what we might call uh, cultic or religious prostitution. This happened at the Temple of Aphrodite. So as part of, believe it or not, religious worship, you might have sexual relations with a prostitute. Or it could just be temple prostitution in general where people went to the temples for all kinds of reasons. They went there for civic events. All the meals were there. Celebrations were there. And as part of these celebrations, prostitution abounded. That's one reason Paul will tell us when we get to 8 through 10, you cannot go to the temples anymore. That's the whole point of 8 through 10. And uh, there was just general prostitution throughout the city of Corinth. So this was going on. What we do know is that men in the Roman world were free to carry on homosexual affairs and to commit adultery with slaves, prostitutes, and concubines, while a woman caught in adultery could be charged with a crime. The famous Roman politician and writer Cicero wrote, If there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, even with courtesans, he is doubtless austere, I cannot deny it. But his view is contrary, not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? The writer Plutarch argued that a wife should not be angry with her husband if he is incontinent and dissolute with a paramour or maidservant. She should reason that it is is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman. It was a common Roman view, this is very important here because we're going to phase chapter 7 next. It was a common Roman view that sex within marriage was for procreation. Usually women were married very young, uh, while they were still very fertile, so they could have children, and women commonly died, you know, in childbirth, not uncommonly died. So, that sex within marriage was for procreation, not for pleasure, and that sexual pleasure and gratification for men was to be found in relations with slaves, prostitutes, and other people outside of marriage. Now, how would you like to establish a church in that city? (laughs) We think our society is pretty bad. You know, we think it's uh, it's a pretty bad place, you know, we're living in today. But how would you like to be Paul? And you're trying to bring this Christian morality to that kind of place. You know what? You see what he's facing here in this situation. 6.12 I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, you notice those quotation marks there in the New International Version. Those are put in there by the translators. Now, I think they're right. They're right there. But the ancient manuscripts don't have any punctuation marks at all. They don't even have periods hardly or accents. They don't have anything. In fact, the letters, they're just right beside each other. So this is all put in by our editors. Now, I think they're right here. Now, this is going to become very important when we get to chapter 7, verse 1, because we'll see this again. But this is apparently a Corinthian slogan. They're saying this. I have the right to do anything you say, Paul says. That's what they're saying. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. Paul does not begin by attacking their wrongful behavior. Rather, he confronts the theology on which the behavior is based. 
And that is this saying, I have the right to do anything. Certainly a Corinthian theological slogan and is indicated so by the quotation marks in NIV. Confirmed also by the way Paul cites it in 1032. Where does this slogan come from? Well, it's not clear. One contemporary writer said, using the same language as Paul, the wise are permitted to do anything whatsoever they wish. Since Paul himself was a champion of Christians, so it's possible that's a, just a general thinking among the people of the day. Paul himself was a champion of Christian freedom. Remember Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, as we'll see. We talk about, you know, meat and drink and things like that. Should Christians eat pork or, you know, what, what's the deal on that? Uh, since Paul is a champion, it's possible that the slogan has been adapted from what the Corinthians have learned from him, ignoring the fact that Paul was speaking about Christian freedom, that is, freedom in certain non-essentials, not moral issues, not as like food, days, circumcision, not with Christian morals. They're applying this to anything. Another suggestion is that there is an... This is another expression of the Corinthians' triumphalist theology, the idea that they've arrived. Remember, they said already... You have all you want. Already you become rich. That they think, you know, we're spiritual, we've arrived. We don't know exactly how this arises in their thinking, but these are ideas that they may have thought of. The Corinthians, at least some of them, feel that they have the right or the authority to act as they please, even if it's contrary to Paul's teaching. They feel they have the freedom to act as they please without restraint. For Paul, this is not freedom at all, but a form of bondage. With this qualifier... But not everything is beneficial. Paul says that freedom is not to be for self, but for others. The real question is not whether an action is lawful or right, but whether it's good, whether it benefits. So truly Christian conduct is not not based upon whether I have the right to do something, but whether my conduct is helpful to those around me. The Corinthians are saying, I have the freedom to act with regard to all things. Paul qualifies, yes, but I will not be mastered by anything or anybody. If freedom or liberty is absolutized, without qualification, it become a kind of bondage. There's a kind of self-deception that inflated spirituality promotes, which suggests to oneself that they are acting with freedom and authority. <clears throat> I mean, you meet people, you know. I used to smoke cigarettes, so I can say this, but, you know, when people would say, stop smoking, so I could stop at any time. Yeah, you know, I, I'm free. I can, I can stop at any time. Right, yeah, right. So there's this kind of uh, <clears throat> bondage that we're talking about here. It promotes this slavement. This is obviously true if what one argues for under the banner of freedom is in reality morally wrong. Jesus said in... John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy them both. So here we have another quotation. Notice this in quotation marks. Food for the stomach, they're saying, and stomach for food. And God will destroy them both. <coughs> The body, however, is not, this is Paul, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. So in contrast to verse 12, where Paul does not agree with their slogan in its absolute form, 
I'm free to do anything. I can do whatever I want. Here he's in essential agreement. Both food and the stomach belong to the present age. And God will do away them with them both in the end. But Paul will not let that, not let them take that slogan, which has to do with the irrelevancy of food restrictions, and apply it to illicit sexual relations. Their reasoning went something like this. Since everything is permitted, and since food is for the stomach, and stomach for the food, after all, God will destroy them both in the end, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, that means the body is for sex and sex is for the body. Now that is truly the view of the culture Paul lived in, in in Corinth, as it applies to men particularly. Because God will destroy them both in the end as well. (coughs) Quoting Fee here. But their conclusions are completely wrong on both counts. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The body is for the Lord in the sense that the work of redemption includes the whole person, including the body. If the stomach is irrelevant for future existence, the body itself is not irrelevant. So, through Christ's own resurrection, because he's raised from the dead, our bodies are not ultimately destroyed. Now, that's the Greek idea. That's the idea in Paul's day. That's the Roman idea. That when you die, that's the idea of most people out there in the world. When you die, you just that's it. But that's not true for the Christians. Our bodies, he says, are for the Lord in the present. And so that stands in contrast to the Christians, the Corinthian view of spirituality, which looked for some sort of spiritual salvation, which sort of divested itself of the body. Now, this was the Greek idea. They believed in what's called the immortality of the soul. Sometimes we say that. We believe in the immortality of the soul. That's the Greek idea. That's a pagan idea. We believe in much more than the immortality of the soul. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So the Greeks believe that the body is the prison house of the soul. And when you die, you want to get rid of the body. So what you do with the body is not important. But that's not true for the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Christian creed, I was the Apostles' Creed, one of the early creeds says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So... Remember, uh, I was thinking about Acts 17. Paul goes to Athens right before Acts 18 when he establishes the church at Corinth. He goes to Athens, and he goes to the Areopagus. He goes to the council there, Mars, sometimes called Mars Hill. And he speaks to the Stoics and the Epicureans. He's talking, and he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. And at first, they don't understand what he's talking about, <clears throat> because the, no one wants, nobody in the Greek world wants the resurrection of the body. In the Greek world, you want to get rid of the body. The body is the the body is the source of your problems in pagan thinking. Now we know that's not true. It's not our body; it's our sinful natures. It's our immaterial parts that are sinful. Our bodies are not inherently sinful. But they thought that was the problem, so they want to get rid of the body. Paul is preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And first, they're very confused by that, because the the word for resurrection is the Greek word anastasis. And that's in Greek a feminine word. And they think he's talking about Jesus and his consort anastasis. 
because they thought of gods as having a male and a female counterpart. You know, so in Acts 17, their thinking probably is he's talking about some god named Jesus and his female counterpart Anastasis. Finally, when he goes on and explains things, no, this dude really means the resurrection of the body. What happens? They sneer at the end. <laughs> hey, get rid of this idiot, man. We don't want any resurrection of the body. They just... Now, some say, hey, we'd like to hear this again, but basically that's what happens at Athens. No, the body is sacred. We believe in the resurrection of the body. So, the sacredness of the human body, 615 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. In verses 15 through 17, Paul explains his reformulation of their slogan in verse 13. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, by applying it directly to their going to the prostitutes. Verse 17 declares on the basis of verse 14, verse 15 declares on the basis of verse 14, that the bodies of believers are members of the body of the Lord and therefore cannot be joined to a prostitute to become members of her body. Both are bodily relationships that imply a form of union. The one with Christ, the other with through his one with Christ through his resurrection, the other with the prostitute through intercourse. Paul's point, of course, here is that the two are mutually exclusive. So one must, therefore, as he says later in verse 15, flee from immorality. These are, you can't unite your body to that with a prostitute. You're united to Christ. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul now proceeds to explain verse 15, starting with the sexual union of a man with a prostitute. He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. Why is that true? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So he's citing here Genesis 2.24. So contrary to the popular view in the culture, and obviously this is seeped in the church, that having sex with a prostitute is just an insignificant matter. It's nothing. What, what's the deal? Paul disagrees. He disagrees. He cites 2.24. The two will become one flesh. There's no such thing as casual sex that has no enduring consequences. Even when the partners have no intention of forming a mutual attachment. Paul argues it creates a bond that has significant ramifications. While the union of a man and wife as one flesh implies far more than merely physical union, Paul's concern here is strictly with the physical aspects of the union. To have sexual intercourse with a prostitute involves an illicit sexual joining of one's body to that of another. It's not the sexual union itself that's incompatible with union with Christ. It's union with a prostitute. This constitutes bodily union with a person who herself is not a member of the body of Christ, whose own body is therefore not destined for glorification. Now, though Paul cites 2.24 here, Genesis 2.24, he doesn't mean that sexual intercourse with a prostitute or with anybody that you're not married to creates a marriage. I know he uses the one flesh thing here. He's saying it's a very close relationship. It's more than just casual. It has implications far beyond that. Marriage is a covenant. 
that includes a public commitment to each other. It's a covenant that's a public commitment to each other in some public, legal, and culturally acknowledged way that sets the party off as husband and wife. In verse 17, the illicit union with a prostitute is contrasted to the believer's union with Christ. But whoever is united with Christ is one with him in spirit. The believer is united to the Lord. It may be that the Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit here. Some translations will capitalize this because it says here, uh, one with him in spirit. In the Greek, it's it's not possible to tell whether Paul's talking about just in spirit or the Holy Spirit. We do have the text. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. So we're placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Paul's point here is that physical union of a believer with a prostitute is not proper because the believer's body is already destined, it already belongs to the Lord, and it's destined to be raised with the Lord. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. To this point, Paul has been arguing against the Corinthians in valid theological slogans. If one follows Paul's lines of thinking, then the prohibition naturally follows. Flee from sexual immorality. But this prohibition is not Paul's final word. He offers one further theological reason, closely related to what he's already said. The body is for the Lord. Now he argues that sexual immorality in particular is a sin against one's body, which is for the Lord, because it is also a temple of the Spirit. He says all other sins a person commits are outside the body in the sense that no other sin is directed specifically towards one's own body in the way that sexual immorality is. That raises questions. But are not other sins like drug abuse a sin against one's body? Seems like it would be. Probably the best answer is that sexual immorality establishes a one-flesh kind of relationship within the case of a prostitute, which is against the body in the sense that it's contrary to the natural God-given function of the body in a marital relationship. In fornicating with a prostitute, a man sort of removes his body, which is the temple of the Spirit, controlled, purchased by God, destined for resurrection, from union with Christ and makes it a member of her body. It puts it under her mastery. Uh, Remember, Paul has a lot to say about I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. (coughs) Later he'll say in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields to his wife. So Paul sees this different in that you're putting your body under the mastery of somebody else, which is fine in marriage and required in marriage, but not in an illicit sexual relationship. Every other sin is apart from the body in this specific sense. Verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. <clears throat> Paul now gives a theological justification for his prohibition against sexual immorality in verse 18. With, these, with the use of two final images, the temple and the purchase of slaves, Paul reasserts that the body in its present existence belongs to God. The body is the present habitation of God's spirit, which means by application that no one that, that, that one belongs to the God whose spirit dwells within. This stands in stark contrast, remember, to the Corinthian view that the body is destined for destruction and doesn't have any present or eternal significance. All this leads to the final imperative. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Which, of course, in this context means no sexual immorality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Help us to take heed to these words of the Apostle Paul, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.